We are still in our sermon series this morning on the seven signs and miracles in the Gospel of John. Believe it or not, we're on our fourth sign this morning, which means we are cresting as we speak that halfway point through the seven signs and miracles. I'm sure most of these stories that we've read in this series have been pretty familiar to you, right? If you spent any time learning Bible stories as a child, the chances are that you have heard most, if not all, of these. And the story that we're going to read together this morning is is no different. In fact, this story is so popular that it pops up multiple times in this gospel and other gospels. I think it's maybe one of the most well-known feats of Jesus. And it's, of course, the feeding of the 5,000. We have it here in the Gospel of John, and then we have it a chapter or two later, where Jesus does the exact same thing, but in a slightly different way and for different people. This is one of those passages of Scripture where I feel like it's, it's very dense. It'd be very easy for us to break this down and spend a large amount of time on it, but instead I've I've really tried hard to keep it concise. But in order to try and honor just how much is going on in this passage, we're just going to read it bit by bit. So we're just going to read it a few verses at a time, and then I'm going to stop and speak a little bit, and then I'm going to call you back into the Scripture. So you can find it printed in your bulletin. We're in John chapter 6, and we're verses 1 through 14. You're now reading from the Gospel of John. Let's read the first few verses together. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. Let's stop right there. I love how John paints the scene for this miracle in the first few verses of our text. The Passover was near, which meant that it was springtime in Israel. It meant the rains of March and April had come and the land was now watered and fresh, that those brown hills had soaked up all of those spring rains and now they were green and they were blooming with flowers. I mean, this is just a gorgeous time of year to be in Israel, which for me helps me imagine Jesus walking up that mountain. Of course, crowds were following him. It was hiking weather. It was the time when you did that to go and experience the beauty of the scenery. It doesn't help that this was also popularity time for Jesus. So remember, we're almost halfway through these seven signs and miracles. And if you think back to the first sign at the wedding in Cana, nobody really knew who Jesus was except for a few followers and his mother. We fast forward to the fourth sign, and and we're at a point, right? We've read these stories where Jesus has healed people of their diseases. He's done miraculous things, and it's no surprise that his, his popularity is growing. People know his name now. They, they also know there's some pretty crazy stuff going around about what he can do, what he's capable of doing. And not only that, but what he says about himself and, and who sent him and, and who he is and what his followers say about him. His popularity has grown so much that when he walks up a mountain, thousands, thousands of people follow him. Let's pick up with verse 5. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said 
to Philip, one of his disciples, where are we to buy bread for people to eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Let's stop right there for now. Jesus asks Philip this question, but we as the reader are told that Jesus already knows what he's going to do. And it seems to me that Jesus might also know how Philip is most likely to respond, right? Jesus says to Philip, where are we going to buy some food for these people? They're they're hungry. They're hiking up this mountain to follow me. We have to feed them. Where are we going to get enough bread to feed all of these people? And I think it's safe to say that if that is a test, like our scripture says, then Philip fails the test. He looks at Jesus, I would imagine, dumbfounded by the question and says, Jesus, six months wages wouldn't even pay for folks to have a crumb, to have a tear off of a loaf of bread, much less eat a meal, much less eat their fill. And then here's how I picture the rest of that playing out. Andrew's kind of on the outside of the circle, agreeing, right? Listening to the conversation, agreeing with Philip, like, yeah, Jesus, six months wages wouldn't even crack, right? I mean, it wouldn't even crest the hill for us to get enough bread. And as he's thinking that, he starts to feel a tug at his rope, a small, faint tug. And he ignores it at first, but then it just, it won't really stop. And, And he looks down and he sees a young boy standing there at his feet, just holding up two bags, right? One has five loaves of bread and one has two small fish. I think it's important for us to note some of the details that we get here in this story about what exactly the boy is holding. Barley was considered an inferior grain to wheat. And most likely, this isn't some fresh fish that we're talking about. More than likely, we're talking about dried fish, right? Fish that he was able to put in a bag and carry with him so that he would have some nourishment for wherever he was going or whatever job lied ahead for him. And friends, both of those are signs of poverty. They're signs of not having plenty, right? A bag with two loaves of inferior grain and a, or five loaves and, and another bag of a few pieces of dried fish. So this boy... This poor boy, as our scripture makes sure we understand, seems to have way more faith in Jesus than the disciples do. He pulls out five sleeves of saltines and a can of sardines. That's how I picture it. And he holds them up to Andrew. And he offers to give him all that he has. And what is Andrew's response? What's Andrew's response? It's not a good look, is it? But what are they among so many people? In other words, this stuff won't make a bit of difference. In other words, that's cute, but it's not even worth us taking what you have to offer because it's not going to do a thing. And Jesus, he disagrees. Let's pick pick back up with our scripture. Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down. 
about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The more I reflected on this passage this week, the more I began to notice something that I think is really simple, but something that I feel like ties together the story. And it's a difference in what people are expecting. The disciples at the beginning of our passage, Philip and Andrew are the two that get named, but I imagine that this group is of same mind when it comes to this issue that they're facing. But Philip and Andrew especially, they expect scarcity. They simply go into this thinking that there is not going to be enough, that there is no way that all of these people are going to be fed, that Jesus, even though they've seen him do miraculous things, they've seen him heal people, they've even dropped everything in their lives to follow him, they don't think Jesus can do this. For some reason, they think that this feeding of the multitude, that what it's going to require of Jesus here, that this is where the gig is up, that this is where Jesus just doesn't have it in the tank, that there's no way that Jesus can feed all Of these people, despite what they've seen, despite what they know about this Son of God, this Messiah. I wonder how often we do this. I know I do this all the time. I can remember the times in my life when God has shown up. I can remember the times in my life when God has healed me, whether it be physically or emotionally or or spiritually. I can remember when God provided for me and my family when I felt like I had desperate need and I wasn't sure if there was going to be enough. I can think back to times in my life where I know that God saved me. And outside of that, I wouldn't have had any hope. I can clearly think about moments in my life where I know that God has shown up when I least expected and when I didn't necessarily believe that it was possible. But for some reason, despite knowing all of that, when I face new challenges, when I see obstacles in my life, when things are up in the air and I'm not sure how they're going to land, for some reason, I still find myself wondering if there's going to be enough. I still find myself questioning if God is really going to be there. I wonder if you do the same thing. I still find myself expecting scarcity. There are two people in our story for this morning that don't expect scarcity. One of them is Jesus, but the other one is the boy. The boy doesn't look at the situation at hand and start thinking of reasons why there isn't enough. The boy doesn't look at Jesus and tell him what he's missing and tell him why it's impossible for him to feed all of these people. The boy 
who just happens to be in earshot overhearing Jesus asking Philip where they're going to get enough food for all of these people. He simply looks down at what he's carrying. He just looks down at what he has in his hands. And he walks up to Andrew and he, and he holds it up. He holds it up to him. It may not be enough, but, but will this help? I don't have six months wages and I don't know how we could buy that much food, but I do have five loaves and two fish. I was going to eat some of this later today, but here, here, you take it. It'll, it'll help. You seem like you need it more than me. If you start reading commentaries on this story and on any of the feeding narratives, but especially this one, you'll see people disagree about how everyone got fed. There's two main theories out there how this feeding actually happened. Some people say that others saw the boy's generosity, which inspired them to give what they had as well, And then before you knew it, there was actually enough food there to feed everyone their fill. There's other people that say, no, that's not how it happened. Here's how it happened. Jesus took five loaves and two fish and he multiplied them. And that's how we fed the multitude. The truth is our scripture really isn't clear if you start asking questions like that. And I'll level with you here. I don't don't know how everyone got fed. I don't know if it's a story of people seeing the boy's generosity and being expired and giving what they have, or if it's another example of Jesus's ability to work miracles that defeat the laws of science and logic. And I'll be honest with you, I don't really know if that question is the point. I don't know if that question is really the point of the story here. I think maybe instead the the point is that the boy gave what he had. The boy gave all that he could, and then he trusted Christ. He trusted God to use what he had given to work a miracle, because you see, it's a a miracle nonetheless. However it happened, it's still a miracle. The boy gave what he could, and he expected abundance. And sure enough, abundance flowed from his gift by the power of Christ. The boy gave out of faith. Christ took what the boy had given. He gave thanks to God for it. And then he went person to person, distributing the food, encouraging folks to really get what they needed so that they could eat their fill. The disciples expected scarcity. And this boy expected abundance. A friend of mine from seminary is a pastor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area at a, at a really large church over there. And a few years ago, he was the pastor over young adults. And he had a pretty lofty idea for a mission project that he could do with them. This is a friend of mine. We talk all the time. We help each other write sermons, and we also serve as sounding boards for one another when we get ideas like this, where one of us is dreaming big. We'll often call the other one and say, how crazy am I for wanting to try this at my church? He had discovered, like some of you may know, but I didn't until he called me, that you can buy medical debt, you can buy strangers' medical debt for one cent on the dollar. So when you buy that medical debt, you are taking ownership away from them 
and essentially paying off someone's medical debt for them. And there are programs that identify people who are about to default on their medical debt or have identified that for one reason or or another, there is no way that they will ever be able to pay this off. So that means, right, if you go in and buy someone's medical debt, it's going to vanish. And if they were unable to pay it, then instead of dealing with a bad credit score that would result from defaulting due to medical debt that oftentimes is from no fault of their own, instead it would show up as free and clear. So he heard about this. He found a program in the DFW area that actually allowed him to serve folks in his community that identified people in cases of folks in that area so that he could actually buy medical debt for people that were his neighbors and his church's neighbors. And he felt like God was calling him to do this. And he called me and he told me not only did he feel like God was calling him to do this, but he felt like God was calling him to set a goal of $15,000, which would purchase $1.5 million in medical debt. So he took the idea to his lead pastors, and they thought he was crazy. He, at the time, was averaging between 12 and 15 young adults at his weekly programming, and he had the audacity to say that he wanted to do a church-wide fundraiser led by the young adults to raise $15,000. And his pastors, his lead pastors, tried to get him to pump the brakes a little bit, right, and said, you know what, this is a great idea, you're right, but maybe we should set the goal for two to $5,000 instead of 15. They didn't really think he would reach his goal. You know what they were thinking. They didn't think he'd reach his goal, and and they didn't want him to announce that it'd be a $15,000 goal and then only raise three and then have to stand up in front of the church and say, well, we tried and we're still proud of it, but we didn't actually even come close to our goal. You get it. But he didn't, which doesn't surprise me at all as his friend. He kept the goal at $15,000 and started their six-week fundraiser to try and raise it. And they began working to raise the money, he and the other young adults at the church. They hosted three car washes. They had a chili cook-off. They held a silent auction. And his word got out in the community. He actually started to get calls from people that attended other churches in the area, but heard about what he was doing and wanted to give funds towards that mission. Because they thought it was so cool that you could buy back medical debt for someone who was unable to pay for it. And by the end of the six-week fundraiser, do you think he met his goal? I wouldn't be telling the story if he didn't. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a dead giveaway. By the end of the six weeks, he raised $18,000. He beat his goal by $3,000, which meant that he was able to pay off $1.8 million in medical debt for folks that lived in his community. In fact, 1,331 people in the DFW area got a letter saying that some church they had never heard of had paid off their debt. All because a small group of people expected what? Abundance. All because a small group of people expected abundance. I called him this week so I could get a refresher on that story and and how it had gone because I remembered that he had done that and I thought it would be a good sermon illustration. And you know what he said to me? Loaves and fishes. That's what he said to me on the phone this week. He said, listen, man, all we did 
was bring our loaves and our fishes. And we just watched God take care of the rest. This is a really simple story, isn't it? This story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. We thought that there wasn't going to be enough, but because of the power and presence of Christ, there was. It's an easy story for us to tell, and it's a comforting story for us to hear that God will provide for us. And I think our calling to take away from the story is just as simple. To give what we have, no matter the number of loaves, no matter the number of fish. To give, to trust, to expect abundance, and then sit back and watch God multiply. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us, and I hope that you found this message to be meaningful and life-giving. I look forward to you joining us next time, either on our live stream on Sunday mornings here at Bluff Park United Methodist Church. It's at 10 o'clock a.m., or if you want to join us in person, you're welcome to do so also here at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can find out more about our church family, who we are, what we do, and how to get involved, as well as more information about our worship services at www.bluffparkumc.org. Hope you have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you next time.